Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. In Cotterd, Hertfordshire, England, where the rolling hills and country dirt lanes edged with ancient apple trees have inspired poetry and art, That's where Roger Kingsley had grown up working on his family farm before taking over the family business and the salt of the earth profession of his forefathers, making his living as a farmer. On March 22nd, 2009, Roger rose early, collected his thoughts, made himself tea and a bit of breakfast and headed out the front door to tend to the day's work. He and his family owned 500 acres of land, and that meant Roger was the steward of these 500 acres, tilling and tending, growing and harvesting. Such was the cycle of Roger's entire life. Like the sprouting of spring, Roger had been young once, learning to farm like his father. He had tended the fields and planted a crop and reaped the reward much like he had by growing his family and building his life. And as Roger grew older, August falling into autumn must have been bittersweet as he reaped the bounty of the fields, but then watched them rot and freeze as winter came. There was a cyclical nature to his work. And although nature could be fickle some years, there was a predictability to Roger Kingsley's days. But that morning on March 22nd, 2009, Roger couldn't have imagined what he was about to discover. It was half past seven in the morning. As the early morning mist of March clung to the dirt as the sun rose and brought warmth back to the world, Roger jumped on his tractor and situated himself as comfortably as possible on his perch and began cultivating the field. But off in the distance, contrasting the field and illuminated by the morning light, was a bag sticking out of the ground at the bottom of the field. Roger made note of it, having lots to do that day, intending to investigate the bag when his work would inevitably take him closer in the afternoon. And that's what Roger did. He continued his work, as the sweat built on his brow and didn't give the bag a second thought until later that afternoon, when his work took him closer. Roger turned the tractor off and started climbing off of the machine and with his dogs in tow went to take a look. The bag sat near fencing that edged one of his fields and it had appeared to have been placed intentionally and not thrown from the road that ran through his land on the other side of the fencing. Roger looked down at the dark green hold-all handbag looking pristine and unscuffed. His fingers clasped the zipper and he opened the bag. Inside was an object wrapped in blue builder's plastic, bound by duct tape. Not what he had expected to see, but Roger wasn't entirely sure what he had been expecting, nor did he truly understand what it was he was looking down at. Roger took his index finger and poked the wrapped object, 
and felt his fingers sink in suspiciously. The way whatever was wrapped in the plastic gave way to his fingers. The consistency, the weight of it, made Roger Kingsley feel uncomfortable, and he started to assume the worst as he dialed for police. Police officers quickly arrived to the field, and Roger was ready, standing and waiting to show them to the bag that sat uncomfortably on his land. Investigators approached the bag cavalierly, wondering what oddity they would find. They looked down at the bag briefly before bending down to unzip it, and started investigating the blue plastic and what was wrapped within it. One officer, like Roger, like a curious child, poked the bag, before looking towards his supervisor to tell them what he thought was wrapped in the plastic. It appeared to be, and felt like, human toes. As investigators came to the realization of what Roger had found, they quickly shut the road down and in fact cut off most access in and out of the village for the remainder of the evening into the early morning, as they scoured the scene looking for evidence to who had placed the bag with what appeared to be human remains in it. What Roger had found weren't human toes, but instead the entire left leg of a human. But besides that, there was nothing else suspicious left at the scene. At first, police didn't fully realize what they were dealing with, but as they looked more and more at the human leg at this discovery, it became apparent just how unusual this truly was. It was unusual in the scale to which the leg had been anatomically removed from the body. Investigators weren't sure if this leg was an odd discarded remnant of a medical procedure, or whether it was evidence of a crime, but on closer examination there was no evidence of cauterization, which would have been there had this been done by a doctor or at a medical facility. It looked like foul play, but police had a hard time completely investing in that line of inquiry so early. They started their investigation, but before they could make any meaningful progress, they first needed to somehow identify the victim. If it was possible to find out who the leg belonged to, and if it truly was a murder investigation, then being able to recreate the last few days of the victim and investigating who they knew would be a good jumping off point. But unfortunately, whoever this leg belonged to had never been arrested, so their DNA didn't match a single candidate in the database. The next few weeks were slow, and police were starting to feel pressured by the constant news coverage and speculation. They needed to find their next clue, they needed something to hold on to, but it wouldn't be investigators who would be responsible for moving this case forward. Instead, it was another private citizen who would find the next thread to pull at. On March 29, 2009, there was a second discovery. A passerby had discovered a left forearm, discarded on a quiet country road in Wheat Hampstead, 25 miles from where Roger Kingley had found a leg. Immediately, the thought was the two were related in some way, shape, or form. But without a DNA comparison, police couldn't know. And that's not to mention how extremely rare it is to see distributed body parts, as was being seen now in this particular case. 
Was it related to the leg found earlier that month? Was it the same victim? Or were these multiple victims? Police began looking into missing persons reports, but they had no way of knowing gender, race, age, or really anything, and with no identity, there was no motive. Then, leaving no breathing room for investigators, another member of the public made a third discovery. On Tuesday, March 31st, 2009, in Ashfordby, someone found a human head. A human head. Without a face. The eyes had been plucked from the sockets. The face had been skinned away and soft tissue sliced from the bone. The ears were shorn from the sides of the head, there was no nose, and the tongue had been cut out. It was an atomical clinical dissection, and a fresh one at that. This disfigured head had been discovered like the leg by a farmer tending to his fields, It appeared to have been discarded in the woods and then wild animals carried it out in the open to be discovered, leaving a farmer scarred and police perplexed. DNA finally came back though, confirming for police that all three body parts were that of one victim. But investigators still weren't sure if they were trying to find a man or a woman, let alone had any idea who the victim was. Initially, it was assumed that the head, leg, and arm were that of a young woman. But Sue Black, an anatomist, and her team at the Anthropology Forensics Department at Dundee University quickly dispelled that notion. It wasn't a young woman, no. This head had belonged to a middle-aged man. It also struck investigators as odd that whoever had been responsible had neglected to pull the teeth from the skull. After going through all that work to remove and dissect the face, removing as many indicators of who this was as possible. But they had left the teeth, a common way of identifying a John Doe. But like the DNA, there were no dental records that they could find to assist investigators in discovering who this individual had been. And that's where the investigation sat, hoping, waiting perhaps praying that someone would magically appear to help move along their efforts. A week passed and then it happened. More remnants of this crime began to appear once more. On April 7th, a right leg was found in Pucker Ridge. And then a few days later, a suitcase containing a torso was found three miles south of Pucker Ridge. These body parts were from the same victim, The DNA matched, and the blue plastic wrapping matched as well. With the discovery of the torso, police still didn't know who the hell this was. But they now knew how they died. Whoever it was had been stabbed in the back. Enough was enough, though. It was time to ask the public for tips. Of course, they couldn't show an image of what it was they had found, especially not the head of the victim. But they knew roughly how tall the individual had been, they knew it was a man, and they knew roughly the age and date range of which they passed away in. In a televised press release, police released this information to the public and then provided a hotline. All that there was left to do was cross their fingers and hope that maybe, hopefully, they got a credible tip that might set the whole case on fire. Tips started to roll in, some crazy, some sensible, but none that were credible enough. 
except for one. A family member of a man named Jeffrey Howe detailed the appearance, location, and key details that made police think that they might have their possible victim. Jeffrey Howe was 49 and lived in Southgate, a suburban residential area on the outskirts of London. He was a 49-year-old kitchen supplies salesman who made a good living and lived in a two-bedroom flat that he shared with a couple tenants. But in early March 2009, Jeffrey vanished from his home without any clue to where he might have gone or what had happened to him. And on the 16th of March, Jeffrey was reported missing by a friend. According to family and friends, he was jovial, charming, and an absolute character with a heart of gold. But unfortunately, as police were about to find out, it was that heart of gold that might have been the end of Jeffrey. Officers were sent to Jeffrey Howe's home address. And just as they had been told, there was no sign of Jeffrey Howe. But Jeffrey's tenants were home, 37-year-old Stephen Marshall and his 20-year-old girlfriend, Sarah Bush. Apparently, Jeffrey and Stephen had worked together as partners in a kitchen fitting business at one point in time. And that time had long passed. But all the same, when Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush found themselves in dire straits in November 2008, Jeffrey offered to allow them to stay in his spare bedroom for a little rent each month. But things quickly soured. Shortly after moving in and agreeing to pay rent, Stephen and Sarah stopped paying and then refused to leave when Jeffrey asked them to. Investigators quickly pulled Sarah and Stephen to the side as they looked around the flat and asked for their account in relation to Jeffrey and why he wasn't home. The reaction that Stephen and Sarah gave when asked was nervous and of an evasive nature, with visible general displeasure at willing to help police locate Jeffrey. That made police uncomfortable. Perhaps there was nothing there, but it seemed that there was something going on unsaid beneath their words. Police continued to look around the apartment, but at that point, there was no probable reason to bring the couple in for more formal questioning. But then they found a numbered license plate hidden in one of the wardrobes. The registration read H8WEJ, a custom plate meant to be read as How J. Police briefly left the flat, discussing with one another what they had discovered and how they perceived the couple. And then shortly after, police returned and arrested Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush. A forensic team rushed into the apartment and began their search for evidence of murder. Now that they had arrested the couple, the countdown timer was ticking loudly. If they were unable to find anything substantial, they would no longer be allowed to detain the couple and would have to let them go. The couple had been arrested on suspicion of murder, but police didn't even know if they were in fact responsible and weren't 100% certain yet that there was a murder that had taken place. As the forensic team first entered the apartment, everything looked in order. There was nothing to suggest it was the scene of a murder at all. But it was abundantly clear that a massive cleaning effort had recently taken place. 
It wasn't until investigators began pulling back carpet and moving furniture that they found the blood. Proof that there had been significant pools of blood that had been spilt in the bedroom and the bathroom. Police believed that either Sarah or Stephen stabbed Jeffrey in the bedroom and then dismembered him in the washroom. As the forensic team worked around the clock trying to accumulate enough evidence to hold Stephen and Sarah, Stephen was being interviewed. Stephen Marshall came across to everyone involved as charming and nice, and he maintained that demeanor the entire time he was in custody. But with his polite mannerisms, he said time and time again throughout the interview, no comment. Stephen, are you responsible for the death of Jeffrey? No comment. Stephen, are you innocent? No comment. Stephen, what do you think might have happened? No comment. But as the interview progressed, his guilt became more and more apparent as his head hung in his hands, rubbing his forehead, sighing heavily, and sullenly saying once more, No comment. And although Stephen was determined to avoid self-incrimination and repeated time and time again, No comment, Sarah Bush did give an explanation to police but it was clearly fabricated without much forethought and on the spot. But neither admitted anything in relation to a crime, let alone a murder. And while Stephen and Sarah were in custody, being questioned by police, forensic teams were ripping apart the flat they lived in, looking for anything containing Jeffrey's DNA to be extracted from. And that's because police still had no idea if the dismembered body they had was in fact Jeffrey. His brother had been the one to call police, informing them of his missing brother. That was the tip that led them down that road. But beyond that, his brother and the rest of their family were unable to help. And that's because Jeffrey was adopted. Investigators were fighting for every inch, and although the usual roads to identification were blocked, there were still more niche avenues they could take. Using a photo of Jeffrey Howe and a CT scan of the skull they had discovered, investigators were attempting to establish a strong enough link between the two to prove the identity of the body. Experts surmised the unique curvature of the skull, the eye sockets, the jaw, and nasal cavity. Well, everything matched perfectly. And then police finally found dental records, previously undiscovered, to match the teeth. Jeffrey Howe was their dissected victim, and he had been murdered. On April 23rd, investigators triumphantly set a press release revealing to the public their new findings, eager to come to a resolution of the case and provide their sleepy communities with resolution. The following day, Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush were officially charged with murder and held pending a trial. On the 1st of May 2009, Stephen and Sarah appeared in court and both entered a plea of not guilty and at the prosecution's request set the trial for January 2010. Now that investigators had been granted the time they needed, they started to solidify their case. Forensic investigators began looking at the tape that bound the body parts in plastic. The duct tape used, which had been rolled up when unraveled at the time of use, the tape would have picked up anything it would have come into contact with, 
and investigators did find something with this line of inquiry. There were fibers believed to have come from a blue object with peach skin texture. Something like an air mattress. And just like the air mattresses that Stephen and Sarah had just purchased. And green polyester and green cotton fibers thinner than a single hair that matched a green polo owned by Stephen Marshall. This was enough evidence to make the argument that Stephen Marshall was at least present at the time of dismemberment. But the question still had to be answered. Was Stephen Marshall even capable of dismembering a body in the manner Jeffrey had been dissected? Each cut, each incision, had found the perfect spot on the first try. Anna Thomas helping in the investigation said they'd never seen anything at that level of skill to that point. And if it had been one of them who had performed the dissection, they would have done nothing different. In other words, it was perfect. To think Stephen Marshall was their equal was a chilling thought. Did he have any atomical knowledge or background? Or perhaps even a previous career as a gameskeeper or even a butcher? The answer was a resounding no. There was no logical explanation for how Stephen Marshall acquired his expertise. The entire case up to this point had been so bizarre, and so too was the start of the trial. Before the jury had been sworn in, Stephen admitted to dismembering Jeffrey Howe, but not his murder, and over the course of the three-week trial maintained that statement. And now Stephen and Sarah were both pointing the finger at one another as well. But all the same, no matter who was responsible, both partook in the spoils of their crime together. It was revealed in court that on March 9th, Stephen had taken Jeffrey's cell phone to a pawn shop and sold it for 50 pounds. Then again on March 9th, Sarah Bush used the internet at the local library to buy a mobile phone using Jeffrey's account. Clothes were also purchased online using Jeffrey's name and banking information and regular fast food and even grocery orders were made to various addresses connected to both Sarah and Stephen. Then the pair began writing fraudulent checks to themselves from Jeffrey Howe's account, including one for £850, deposited into Sarah's account on March 12th. Then a week later, Stephen Marshall was captured on CCTV, cashing a check for just under £100 from Jeffrey's account to his own. And then yet again, on March 21st, Stephen Marshall sold Jeffrey Howe's car in an online auction. And that's because he knew Jeffrey wasn't coming back. Three weeks of the prosecution's case passed, and as they were beginning to close out their case, and before Stephen Marshall and Sarah Bush could take the stand, there was another twist. On January 29th, 2010, Stephen Marshall pleaded guilty to murder. Initially, Sarah maintained her total innocence, but as she saw Stephen fold, she pleaded guilty to lesser charges, including helping to dispose of a body and falsifying information to police about the whereabouts of Jeffrey Howe. And as if the court needed yet another shock, Stephen Marshall continued admitting to the court that in the past, he had helped dismember and dispose of victims of gangland killings when he worked as a nightclub doorman in the mid-90s. 
Jeffrey hadn't been the first body that Stephen Marshall had cut up and disposed of, but in fact, by Stephen's own account, Jeffrey had been his fourth. Sarah Bush was sentenced to three years and nine months, and Stephen Marshall was given a mandatory life sentence. All in all, when it's all said and done, Stephen and Sarah made away with $5,000 before being caught. That's $5,000 for the life of Jeffrey Howe. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 